So, verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision made of flesh in hands. Verse 12, In that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So verse 11 and 12 is similar to verses 1 through 3 in Ephesians chapter 2, in the sense that you are without hope, that there wasn't anything in yourself. So first of all, there was a great problem between Jews and Gentiles. Now, from a Jewish perspective, anybody who wasn't Jewish was a Gentile. It didn't happen to be with Greeks or Romans or, or somebody else like that. It was either you were Jewish or you were Gentile. And as much as there are racial tensions and divides, even in our nation and certainly in many other nations, the Jewish Gentile thing was a huge deal. It controlled not only their religion, their economic standing, who got appointed to what sort of positions in the Roman Empire, and that sort of thing. So he is reminding the readers, those he sent this letter to, that you were Gentiles, that you were Christless, that you had no state, no state heavenly state, no state that you could claim as your own. Oh, they might say that I'm Roman, or they might say that I'm Carthian, but they had no state, no substance. They were without friends, hopeless, and then also godless. If you take a moment, and I don't know when you surrendered your heart and your life to Christ. If it was later in life, then you might be able to relate to this. You thought you had friends, but you realized you didn't have any genuine friends until you came to know Christ. You thought that you belonged to America or you belonged to this group of people or this tribe of individuals. But when you came to Christ, you realized, I thought I had something, but now I realize I literally have nothing. You thought maybe you had a relationship with God or a religious setting with God, but then you discovered that you were without hope and that you were godless. So they had no hope. This was our condition prior to knowing Christ. That you were without Christ, being, in the middle of verse 2, being aliens is the idea of being a stranger. If you ever traveled to a different place, Sometimes even in the United States, when you travel to different parts of the country, you understand that you're a stranger, that they do things differently, that they have different kinds of food. You know, I'm originally from California, and I've been here long enough to understand that Whataburger is the burger chain, but if you're still from California, you might think In-N-Out is the best chain, or, so, or other things like that. Sometimes there's little things like that. Sometimes it's much more significant. But then when you travel to other parts of the world, you realize that you really are a stranger. Sometimes you don't understand the language. You don't understand the culture. The food is different. The climate is different. And you feel out of place. Well, apart from Christ, we were strangers. We were aliens. We didn't have any of the covenants. Even that Jeremiah 31, or, yeah, 31, 31 that I read. We weren't partakers of that because we had no relationship with God. 
So again, verses 11 and 12 are sort of a mirror of verses 1 through 3 in the sense of you're without hope, you're hopeless apart from a relationship with Christ. And then verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been brought near. You see, without Christ, you had no spiritual blessings. A little hiccup here in our technology. But anyways, there's supposed to be a slide there that says, without Christ, you have no, there it is, without spiritual blessings, without light, without peace, without rest, without safety, and without hope, without a prophet, a priest, or a king. You see, prior to us knowing Christ, without Christ, you have nothing, and Christ is everything. Don't let somebody fool you into thinking that some sort of religious system or some sort of list of do's and don'ts is something. Or identifying with some group of people or subgroup of people is of importance. The only thing that's of importance is are you identified with Christ? Now, we're with Christ. We were once afar off. We were distant from God, spiritually distant. Some of you maybe were more distant than others, but that we've been brought near. We've been brought near by what? Specifically the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the idea of the blood of Jesus Christ sounds gruesome. It sounds almost like a Good Friday service where we're going to, you know, describe in great detail the, the pain and the agony of the crucifixion of Christ, which is all of that is true. In the, but we need to understand it did take the blood of Jesus Christ to be poured out for us to be unified with Christ. But when we talk about the blood of Christ, we need to understand it is bloody, it is gory, but it's all motivated by love. If, if you've ever seen the, oh, I can't remember the name of the movie, the Mel Gibson movie about the, the passion of Christ, that's what it's called. Uh, if you've seen that and it grossed you out, understand it was a gross movie, but it wasn't nearly as gross as the actual events. And the idea here is for us to recognize that he willingly did that because of his great love. He was motivated by love for you and he draw, drew yourself. You see, sometimes we have different opinions or different ideas of how to draw close to Christ. If I give up, something, chocolate ding-dongs for a month, then I grow closer to Christ. That doesn't work. If I give X amount of money, if I win the lottery and give God 10%, then I'm closer to Christ. That's not what works. It's not law-keeping. It's not belonging to a certain group of people or identifying with a certain group of people. It's not trying to be more Jewish it's not trying to be more authentic in this way or that way. It is brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what draws us near. Again, it's not because we're from Texas, although I think Texas is the greatest state in the union, but that doesn't make us more biblical than somebody else. Or it's not because we live in America that therefore we're part of the in group. That's not it at all. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that draws us in to himself. And we need to remember that. In that Jesus did suffer on the cross. 
but it was the penalty, the wrath of God being poured out on him, motivated again by great love to draw you near. It's not to be offensive, but it's to draw us near because of his tremendous love for us. Moving on to verse verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. You see, Jesus Christ separates, or excuse me, not separates, but gets rid of the separation. Paul was writing in the time period when the temple was still there. And if you're familiar with the temple, it was divided into several different sections. There was a section called the Court of the Gentiles, which had a literal wall that separated the Gentiles from where the Jewish women could go, then the Jewish men could go, and then ultimately the priest and the high priest. But there was a literal wall that separated them. That if somebody was a devout person who wanted to seek God, but they were a Gentile, they weren't allowed into the inner areas. They could only go in so far. And Jesus came to tear that wall down, that there is no longer a separation. You see, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross creates for all of us the common ground of salvation, of both Jew and Gentile. There is no longer any sort of dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Jesus broke down that wall. And when we talk about walls of separation, we have to understand the things that divide us, our likes and our dislikes, the racial divides, we need to understand that Christ has broken that down. There is no black versus white or brown versus yellow. There is no this versus that. We are all one in Christ. That there is a common ground between all of us. This wall of separation is because of our surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's up here on the screen. If the Lordship of Jesus Christ is not greater than any differences you might have with somebody else, I understand that we have different things. Somebody likes soccer, somebody likes football. Somebody likes rap, somebody likes country. But we shouldn't let those things divide us. We can have our likes and dislikes, but it shouldn't be something that divides us. It should not be a political divide. It should not be a racial divide or an economic divide or even a language divide or geography or anything else. If you and I are surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, there is no room for us as individuals to have divides amongst us. To say, well, they're that people, whatever that people means. If there are divides in our minds and our hearts, it's a symbol, it shows us that we haven't surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Just because somebody speaks a different language or has a different culture doesn't mean that they can't be born again through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he's abolished or tore down both the physical wall, of course the temple was torn down, 
but the symbolic wall, the division. And again, we fail oftentimes to understand the great hatred that the Jews had towards the Gentiles. You see, a Jewish person didn't simply look at a Gentile like they were different. They looked at them as if they were a third-class citizen. Many times, the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as dogs. Dogs, by the way, were not fluffy that you and I have as pets today. Dogs were considered animals that were to be driven off. They were scavengers. You hid your children from the dogs. They were a lowly animal that was just a nuisance, but not just only a nuisance. It was something that could hurt your family, and so you drove them away, and you had no respect for them. That's how the Jews thought of everybody who wasn't born of the family of Abraham. Everybody. And by the way, the Gentiles had a similar idea about the Jews. They were a weird and strange people. They wouldn't eat the food that other people ate. They, they thought of themselves as superior. They would wash their hands in certain ways. And all the non-Jews, the Gentiles, looked down upon the Jews as some sort of weird people. And then Christ comes and makes us one. And that's what Paul's talking about here that Christ has broken down this wall between us. You say we can't have the lordship of Jesus Christ if we have walls between us as individuals. He's abolished in his flesh, his flesh being crucified for us, this enmity, this war, and now looking at the spiritual realm, this war between flesh and spirit, this war between I will do it myself versus a surrender to Jesus Christ. This war or this wall of if I keep these commandments or these laws, then I become a better person than somebody else. If I follow these ordinances, then I'm somehow better than someone else. Instead of humbly coming to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ brought them both into one body. We are one body in Christ, whether we live in India, Haiti, China, Africa. It doesn't matter. We are one body in Christ. And then he goes on here to say, having abolished again the, the law, the ordinances, so as to create in himself, that is in Jesus Christ, one new man from the two, thus making peace. You are a new man, a new woman in Christ Jesus. He's brought us together. Early Christians used to think of themselves, if we can go to that slide, early Christians used to call themselves a third race or a new race, not trying to make themselves a racial divide, but they said, because we're a new person, I'm no longer Jewish, I'm no longer Gentile, I'm something new. So they oftentimes would refer to themselves as a third race or a new race. Early Christians recognized that they were not Jews, they were not Gentiles, but one new man embracing Jesus Christ. So no longer do they identify as Jewish or Gentile, but they identify themselves as followers of Jesus. And we ought to have that same idea. No longer do we identify ourselves as American or Texan or white or brown or African American. We ought to identify ourselves as I am a Christian. The pigmentation of my skin may be different. My 
Culture may be different, but I am a new person, a new woman in Jesus Christ. And it's through the cross of Jesus. It's not through my own effort. It's not through uh, things that I've done, but it's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. Again, there should be no separation between us and amongst political divides, racial divides. Now, we can have different ideas on our politics, and I certainly believe that some politicians are more in line with Scripture than others. But the idea for us to have a hatred or an animosity towards somebody because they hold a different biblical or different worldview or a different political view, we need to be surrendered all to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as God has revealed Himself through His Word. There's all kinds of things, again, that we have differences about, but we should be one in Jesus Christ. Now notice this also on the spiritual level. He's putting to death this war between flesh and spirit. You see, the old man or the flesh wants to rule and reign in our lives. And God says he wants to have the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit rule. On Sunday morning, we went through a list of these are evidences of the flesh. They're in Galatians chapter 5. And then we briefly touched on, and this Sunday we'll touch a little bit more on it, the fruit of the Spirit, what we call the love, joy, peace. These are evidences that somebody's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You can't do both. You can't be under the influence of the Holy Spirit and participate in activities that are works of the flesh. They're at war with one another. And so what's the solution? It's Jesus Christ. More of him, more of Jesus in our lives to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to be alive in the spirit, to put to death my own selfish ambitions, my own selfish desires, and to be alive in Christ. Again, the two can't coexist. And sometimes we as Christians, we mistakenly think that we can play a game with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Jesus made it quite clear throughout the Gospels that we have to be sold out for Jesus. So he's put to death this enmity. The solution for the battle between the flesh and the spirit is Jesus. That's what the solution is. It's not cold showers at 4.30 in the morning. It's Jesus. Now, if you like cold showers at 4.30 in the morning, especially in the summertime, wonderful, go for it. But understand that by itself doesn't bring you a sensation or the stopping of the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off to the, and to those who were near. So those who were close to God, perhaps the Jews here, or those that had an idea. Maybe you grew up in a good setting with a good church family or Christian family. Christ still comes to you to preach that you need to receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. But maybe you were far off. Maybe you were, had no inkling about God, no idea about God. And God went to you and preached to you, proclaimed to you the good news. Again, the word preach means to announce or to proclaim. We in our modern English use the word preach sort of in the idea of doing a Bible study or doing a motivational speech about God. But the literal word means to simply announce or to proclaim to others. 
And he came and he announced and he proclaimed peace. You see, you were at war with God. Verses 1 through 3, verses 11 and 12 here in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. You were at war with God, whether you were close to him but still fighting him off, or you were distant from him and wanted nothing to do with him. He came that you would have peace. And that peace is through him because he draws us near to himself. Usually the first reaction when we're struggling with our walk with God or relationship with God is that we, are, we grow distant or we shove God out of our lives in certain ways. You know, maybe we stop spending any time just seeking him and fill our time or our minds with other things. Maybe we stop listening to worship music or something else because every time I do that, it convicts me and I don't want to be convicted. And so we begin to push God out. Or we stay away from fellowship with other Christians because that convicts me and I don't want to have to explain myself. And so we push the Lord away. But God wants us to be near to him. We can have a great confidence to run to him. And he's there with his open arms welcoming us, even if we've rebelled. When we repent, he is welcoming us back. I think of the story of the prodigal son as an example of that. And then notice verse 18. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. What an interesting thought here. Verse 18. Through him, the him, of course, in context is Jesus Christ. Through him, we have both access. Access to what? To the Father by one spirit. Here is a hint, a clue about what? What we call the Trinity or the triunity of God. It is through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that we have access to the Father. The idea, it's a clue about this three in one. Sometimes critics of Christianity will say, well, the, there's no such word as Trinity in the Bible, in the English Bible, and that, in fact, is true. But the concept is sprinkled throughout all of the scriptures. So there's just one of them for you. Verse 19, now therefore. Now therefore. So if there's a therefore, we ought to look why it's there. In, chapter, in verse 11, we looked at verses 1 through 10 of therefore, because of what God has done, this is how we ought to respond. Now therefore, because you are one in Christ, because you have peace with Christ, because you've been brought near to God, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You see how the language here in the book of Ephesians works all together? This is, again, one letter. And sometimes, again, we as Christians, sometimes we just pick certain verses. Oh, we like this one. And it fits good on a bumper sticker or a T-shirt or something else like that, which by itself is okay. But understand, this was originally written to us as a letter with thought building upon thought. And so again, verses 1 through 3, you are lost because of your spiritual condition. Verse 4, but God brought you near by his grace so that he would get glory through you. Verses 11 and 12, you were far off. You weren't Jewish. There was a separation between you and the Jews. But you've been brought near. There was enmity or strife or a war between you and other people, but God has brought us near. There's a war between the flesh and the spirit, but God has brought you near to him. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers, one with another. We should not be strangers. And, of course, most importantly, with God, we are not strangers to God. 
and foreigners. The idea of strangers and foreigners is, again, you walk into a strange town or a strange city, and everybody knows everybody, but you're the oddball out. A foreigner is the same idea of an alien, somebody who travels to a different city, different town, different country, and they stand out because they don't act, they don't dress the same way as everyone else. Some of you have had opportunities to go to other nations where the color of the, the, the national population of their skin is significantly different. And if you're white like me, you stand out and people stare at you. Now, the adults kind of stare at you. They do kind of the, you know, they glance at you and glance three or four times. The children, though, are wonderful because they just flat out stare at you. And they'll, if they get close enough, they'll come up and touch you to see, you know, what, what is this? Uh, some, in some places in, in India where I was able to travel in the past, there were children who had never seen a white person before. And so, first of all, they're scared, and then secondly, they're touching me just to kind of see what's going on. And if you do that, if you travel someplace else like that, you have to get used to the idea of you're a stranger, you're a foreigner, and you need to be comfortable with that. So here, we are no longer strangers. We are no longer foreigners, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Whether we grew up Jewish or Gentile, whether we grew up in, in a Hispanic family or an Asian family, we are one in Christ because we belong to the family of God. There's not a distinction amongst us between one ethnic group versus another ethnic group. We belong to the human race. We might have different color skin, we might have different color hair, different color eyes, but we belong to the human race. And through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are now no longer strangers, and especially to God. We're not a foreigner to God, and you shouldn't feel awkward or like a foreigner to God. But you can draw near, come into the presence of God, because you're members of the household of God. God says to you and I that we are adopted children. And as children, you have full access. You have the reign of the household of God. You can come in and come into the presence of God. God's never too busy for you. He's never too bothered with you. He's never, well, I've heard that story a thousand times before. I don't want to hear it again. That's not God. We as human beings sometimes act that way, but God doesn't. He loves us, and he wants to hear your stories. He wants us to pray to him, to interact with him. He wants us to read his word. He wants us to worship him with an expression of gratitude and, and, a, and an adoration towards him for all that he's done and all that he is. And we should feel comfortable with that because we're part of this household of God. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Paul writing here at the book of Ephesians is saying, what we understand, the faith that we have is built on apostles and prophets. So apostles would be, now there's a common day use of the word apostle, but the use of the word apostle here from, the, from a Paul 
was the idea of one of those individuals that was used to establish the church, like Paul himself, or a Peter, or a James, or a Thomas. These were men that were used by God to establish the churches, to write for us what we have in our hands, the New Testament. And then the prophets would be people that would come alongside to, I think of a Barnabas or a Silas or somebody else like that, who would come alongside and confirm what God was doing. So our faith in Jesus Christ is in Christ, but we have to look back and say, look what it was built upon. God used these men for these things and women along the way. Now, it's also fair for us to say God has used men and women throughout what we call church history since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to build upon that. But the foundation needs to be built upon Jesus Christ. I think of, say, a Billy Graham. We might look to him and say, wow, this is a man who God did certain things through. Or maybe it's a Corey Ten Boone that we might look at and say, look at this woman of faith and how her life exhibits faith in the love of Jesus Christ. And it's fine for us to look at that. But let's also be clear. There is not not nothing. That's good English. There's not nothing, but it emphasizes the point. There's nothing new under the sun. There's not some new dynamic, not new some philosophy out there. Just because somebody says, hey, I'm a prophet or a prophetess, and God told me something new and different that's not in here, doesn't mean we need to follow it. Matter of fact, we're told not to follow it. Because somebody uses a title of prophet or prophetess or the title apostle or title bishop or the title of pastor and says, but I've got some new way. We are not to follow it. We're to follow what the word of God says. Now, does God use individuals in our lives to illuminate God's word for us? Absolutely. But if somebody comes along and says, well, hey, I have this title. Therefore, you have to listen to me, uh, is just totally false. God's picture here is that he built, it's like a building. He likens the church to a building. The foundation is these apostles and prophets. I think again of, say, James or Peter or Luke or John. Those were the apostles and the prophets. And then look at, look at the next line. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We are built on Jesus Christ. We're not built on traditions of men. We're not built on other things, but we're built on Jesus Christ. Now, this term cornerstone is used throughout the Bible in a number of cases and a number of places. And if we can get to that other slide, it looks like an arch. So on one side, you have what looks like this arch here. Now, this sometimes is called a keystone, or it could be called a capstone, or it can be called a cornerstone. In the original Greek language, uh, that word is translated either cornerstone, capstone, or keystone. So it's the idea, it's the essential thing that holds the building together. It's the most important. Now, this is an archway up there, and of course, if you pull this arch, this keystone up here, or capstone out, the archway just comes tumbling down. And Jesus said that he is the chief cornerstone. So let's look at a couple of verses for you. I'll just read them to you. They're listed up there. Psalm 118, verse 22 said this, 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So if you're building a building out of stone, they bring in all kinds of stone and they would chip it away to shape it into different places. And the builders, the people who are supposed to know what they're doing, oftentimes would reject certain stones because it didn't fit. And so the Jews rejected Jesus. But he was the perfect, he was the cornerstone or the capstone, or the keystone. He's the one that fit everything together. And so Psalm 118 is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Over in Isaiah 28, verses 16 and 17, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily, I will also make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. So here's the idea that Jesus Christ is, again, this foundation stone, the tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. This is, both of those verses, of course, are from the Old Testament, the book of Psalms and Isaiah, that Jesus Christ would be what our faith, our relationship with Jesus is built upon. In Acts chapter 4, we see this, verses 10 through 12. Let it be known to you all that all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, talk about preaching, this is announcing, the Jesus that you guys just killed, whom God raised from the dead, by this man stands here before you whole. The question was, there was a, a man who was paralyzed and he had been healed. And they said, by whose power did you do this? And Peter's response was... <laughs> Yeah, you remember that Jesus character that you all crucified? It's by him. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, quoting from 118, Psalm 118. This has become the chief cornerstone. Of course, we already read in Ephesians, and now let's look at 1 Peter. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22 talks about the same idea, the foundation in Jesus being the cornerstone. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. Coming to him as a living stone, Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So Jesus, again, is alluded to the idea of being a stone. But we're all living stones. We're going to be part of this kingdom of God. Jesus, of course, is the central figure the capstone, the, the keystone. He's the one that we're built upon. If you kick Jesus out, and, and specifically what I mean is Jesus Christ as he's revealed to us through the scriptures, if we kick that out, then we, are, we have nothing else. Then Christianity is nothing more than a social club, a bunch of do-gooders trying to do stuff. And it's not the power of salvation. It's not the power to take away the strife and the enmity that exists between people and unite them. There's no power to take away the strife and enmity between you and God to unite you with God himself. There's no power to conquer the flesh and to yield to the Spirit if you take Jesus out of the equation. It's all about Jesus. It's simple but complex. It's about Jesus. What we need, what this world needs, is Jesus. You look at the news and you hear about strife and disorder and hatred and injustices in the world. 
And what the world needs is not more laws. What we need is a revival in our hearts and revival in our nation to surrender to Jesus Christ. That's the solution. We don't need more people like me. We need more people like Jesus. We don't need more people like you. We need more people like Jesus. And may God continue to develop each of us to be more and more like Jesus. And so he concludes here, having built on the foundation, verse 20 again, of the apostles, the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. We're not talking about a physical building. Nothing wrong with physical buildings, but Jesus here is talking about you and I being spiritual buildings, a spiritual living stones that's built upon Jesus Christ. It's a building that we're all gathered together. The whole building being fit together. You understand, as we have differences and we're one in the family, God uses you uniquely in the family of God. And God wants each of you The church needs each of you to function in the roles that God's called you and he's gifted you in. Not everybody has the same gifting. Not everybody has the same calling, but we're all called to be fit together. In this little picture here, you have, if you were building this, you would have stones of different shapes and sizes, but when they're all built together and fit together, it makes a perfect arch. That's what God wants to do in us. So what if you like soccer instead of football? God still loves you and wants to use you. Or if you come from Africa, you come from India, so what? God still wants to use you as part of his church universal. You have different qualifications or attributes. God wants to use you in all those things. So being built together, a holy building, which grows into the holy temple of God, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. First of all, we are individually a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. But secondly, we exist as a church, as a group of believers, a local church body, to be the dwelling place of God. God isn't constrained by walls or people, but He wants to work in and amongst us in such a way that others would say there's a group of people that love Jesus. That might be weird, but they love Jesus. And that needs to be what our hearts are about. Being built together, that we would be this dwelling place. You see, when Solomon built the first temple, remember David had gathered all the materials together, but Solomon was the chief architect following God's plans, but he was the builder The stones were prepared in a place out of sight from the temple. They didn't want the sound of the chisels to disrupt the temple place because it was a place to worship the Lord. So they were built or honed or chipped away outside, away from the temple. And it was said that you couldn't hear a hammer or an axe or an iron tool, according to 1 Kings chapter 6. In the same way, God works on each of us and then brings us together for his glory, for his building. That's what God wants to do in each of our lives. It's a glorious thing when God works that way. There's nothing as noble as the church, the church universal and the church local, being seen that you are the temple of God. 
It's a place to worship the Lord, to honor the Lord. I'm not talking a particular building, but it's noble for us as the church to understand we are the temple of God. There's nothing so worthy of reverence as the place that God desires to dwell in. He wants to dwell in you individually, but he also wants to dwell in us as a group of believers as the church. The church is something that has existed for well over 2,000 years. It's a glorious thing. God has used different men and women to build this church. Not a physical church, but a spiritual church. And when this church has its solid foundation on Jesus Christ, the worries, the storms of life, the persecutions that arise will not destroy it. And again, we see that through church history. Those who have a solid foundation in Christ. You and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we're called to be the church and we're called to reach the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. You and I as part of the church of Jesus Christ, as the group of born-again believers, do you understand that God calls you perfect because he has justified you? He wants the Holy Spirit to work in you, to, to work out those things that don't belong to him, that don't represent him well, so that he would get the glory. There's nothing more beautiful than the body of Christ, functioning the way that God designed us. No rumors, no gossip, no backbiting, but building one another up as we surrender to Jesus Christ. It's the most beautiful thing to see the church in action as God designed it to be. Not with somebody in, uh, more important than somebody else or somebody lower than somebody else, but all of us at the foot of the cross. The church is supposed to spread throughout the whole earth as we're built upon this foundation of Jesus Christ. And our robes, our clothing, has been dipped in the blood of the Lamb that we would be spotless. There's nothing as divine or holy as the living body or living building that's inhabited by the Holy Spirit. You and I are called to be living stones in a living building that the Holy Spirit would have rule and reign in our lives that we would yield to the Spirit's leading. We would die to our fleshly, selfish desires and be alive to Christ in us. And when we do that, God gets the glory. It's not about a leader or an organization. It's all about God. Jesus Christ is the foundation. Jesus Christ is the solution to man's problems. Obviously, it's the solution for our eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, for us individually to have peace, for us individually to have a sense of purpose in our life. But Jesus Christ is also the solution for the problems of the world that we live in. The racial divide, the hatred, the injustice that we see in the world around us, the solution is Jesus Christ. And guess who has that solution? You and I do. 
we get the privilege of introducing, proclaiming, preaching, announcing to others, I know the solution. I know the answer. Politicians will keep talking. Politicians have been around ever since right after Adam and Eve, I'm sure. Some politicians are good, some not so good. But it's not a political solution. It's not an economic solution that we need. It's not an educational solution that we need. It's a spiritual problem, and it takes a spiritual solution, and that solution is found only in a relationship surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that we're brought near by the blood of Christ, that Christ willingly died on that cross for us. That's the solution. If you get caught up listening to news commentators or talk radio, understand the solution is not through them, it's in Jesus Christ. If you get caught up in the, the rumor mill or the gossip at work or in other locations, understand the solution is in Jesus Christ. If you get caught up in the family dramas that happen, understand the solution is in Jesus Christ, not in somebody's wisdom or determination. The solution is found simply and completely in Jesus Christ.